Welcome to Hollowed Ground Storycast. I'm Alan. And I'm Anya. And I'm Sarah. And this episode is about my undying love and life-changing experience with the book, The Divine Secrets of the Yaya Sisterhood. It's like life. You don't figure it out. You just climb up on the beast and ride. <laughs> um, well, thank you, Sarah, so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm like, Long-time listener, first-time caller. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I know we have a lot of Sarahs out there in our community, so just to clarify, this is other underscore girl on Twitter um, who is host of many shows. In fact, literally too many to name in this intro. You go on my website, otherbluegirl.wordpress.com, and you can find all of them on the Listen to Me Talk tab. Yeah, I'm kind of a podcasting addict. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, and most people, when they say that, they just mean listening. But no, you're actually addicted to making them. I'm like, it's really fun. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I guess I should point out that uh, you had me on a guest on your show, The Doctor, The Detective, and The Woman, when you were covering Orphan Black um, to talk about the way that science was portrayed and some of the the genetics and the science behind the show. Um, So that was really fun. Yeah. Yeah, and your flagship show that you've been doing the longest is called Famished and Feasting. Yes, um, it And is. it covers a bunch of different topics. Yeah, with Famished and Feasting, I was going to name it Better Late Than Never, but that title was already taken because the whole idea behind the podcast was me talking about fandoms where I had entered into them way after their inception, much like, much like Divine Secrets. But I still love them with a passion and I want to gush about them. But I'm like, I know that this is already past due, but this is the first time that I'm experiencing them. So I'm going to squee about it now. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Okay. But we are here to talk about Divine Secrets. Yes. So Divine Secrets of the Yaya Sisterhood is a book. And that's the form that really made a strong impression on you. But it's also a movie. Uh-huh. And so I guess today we're going to talk mostly about the book, but we will be making some comparisons to the movie. Okay, so what is Divine Secrets of the Yaya Sisterhood about? Well, Divine Secrets of the Yaya Sisterhood tells the story of Sidley Walker as she has a crisis about her identity and future. Her mother, Vivi Abbott Walker, sends her a chronicle of her own childhood that bridges the rift between mother and daughter, between past and future, and between fear and love. The book was written by Rebecca Wells and was published in 1996. It was a New York Times bestseller and is part of a trilogy. The other books in the trilogy, if you guys are interested, are Little Altars Everywhere, which is a collection of stories, and then Yaya's in Bloom. I've read both of them. I own both of them, and they're really, really good. The 2002 film adaptation was written and directed by Callie Khoury who also wrote Thelma and Louise and created the TV show Nashville. Awesome. So um, before I get started, why don't you just tell us a little bit about your sort of first experience with the book? Oh, God. My first experience with the book, this like I'm a bit of a storyteller. So I have like this big thing written out. It's a week after I turned 15 (laughs) years old. Some really dark and disturbing things about my father came out and he was arrested and sent to prison. I won't go into details because they're not mine to share, but needless to say, he was sentenced to 12 years in prison and he served that entire sentence. I was visiting family in Texas about three years later. I just graduated high school 
And we went to one of these little sort of, I'm not sure if it was a church thing, but all I remember about it is that there was like, it was a big kind of like yard sale, but except for like a big organization, it was like this giant room and it was filled with all these different tables with boxes where you could basically sort of like buy clothes and all of this used to stuff. So I was wandering around the tables and I saw this book. The cover was what immediately jumped out to me because if you follow me on Twitter, you know that my favorite color is blue. Like I am all about the color blue. And then the title really appealed to my imagination and it was like a used copy of the book. And I brought it to my aunt and I was like, can you buy this for me? And she did. And I honestly have lost count of how many times I've read this book. Sita is so much like me and we both have very complex relationships with someone that we really love who is also really abusive. Like my daddy wasn't the larger than life figure in my life that Vivi was in Sita's, but there is so much in this story that I'm like, oh man, there are spiritual twins between experiences in this book and experiences in my own life. Like I believe because I'm a person of faith. I'm a Christian. I'm not like one of those really super preachy people. So don't worry, dear listeners. But <laughs> I do believe that this book was sent to me by God. Or if you're not a believer of God, the universe, whatever divine thing you choose to believe in. But it gave me a path to sort of confront the abuse that I had in my life. And to sort of take a step back and sort of like ask myself some hard questions, even though if I wasn't really ready to ask myself those hard questions. I feel that there are so many instances in my life, like I said, that have a spiritual twin in this book. And it's breathtaking sometimes when I reread it. Like even now I reread it and there are parts of it that just sort of like reach inside of me and twist. And I'm just like, oh, Jesus yeah, that really hits me in the feels. And I think that that's what's really awesome about this and why I love that y'all have this podcast is because I love talking about stories like that because so much of how I encounter with fiction is emotional and how I have like an emotional attachment to them. And Divine Secrets is just like everything to me. <laughs> That's fantastic. The power of books to like reflect ourselves back at ourselves in a way that you just you don't even realize that like oh wait yeah. this is actually like i'm seeing myself here and i never thought about my life that way and now everything is different like yeah. that is what art can do for you so what were your guys's experience with the book i'm like so excited because i've never actually <laughs> like shared this book with people and like got their feedback on it i think i saw this movie like a long time ago probably like closer to when it came out um, mm -hmm. I love Sandra Bullock and it, it was about yes. like at the time when this came out, I had been living in Southern Louisiana for like close to 10 years. Uh, mm. so I knew that it, it was like, you know, about Louisiana and about this North South connection that Sidley has. And, um, you know, like she's left the South, but she's come back and I, I moved to the South from the North and like, so I, I remember all that, but like when I watched the movie, I was also like, wow, this is, there's a lot and it's confusing. And like, <laughs> I don't know if I'm keeping up with this. And like, it felt like there was a lot more story there that wasn't 
present in the movie, if that makes sense. Uh-huh. Kind of like if you watch a Harry Potter movie without reading a book, you're like, exactly. wow, this, yeah, it's like I'm looking at Swiss cheese that thinks it's cheddar cheese or something, you know, like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh my God, that's such a great analogy. Yes. <laughs> so like I, the movie like faded from my memory for sure. And I never read the book, but of course I've heard of it. You know, like this is a pretty famous American novel from the nineties. And uh, so I read it in preparation uh, for the show. And actually I listened to uh, an audiobook, like everything mm-hmm. I do now is all audiobooks. I don't read with my eyeballs anymore, man. There was like some pretty emotional times where like I was doing the dishes, like I'm standing there my up to my elbows in, in uh, dirty dishwater and like crying over mm-hmm. Vivi and her children you know, like getting sick and um, her being overwhelmed and having no help. And I'm like, I'm seeing myself. I'm also, I'm seeing like my wife's experience. I'm thinking about my parents and like the, all these reflections. And I'm like, oh my God, this book is like so powerful and amazing. Like, even though I feel like this book is not aimed, you know, like as a white guy from the Midwest, like I don't (laughs) feel like this book is aimed at me in much of a way, but it's so human and specific that I feel like it transcends being about Mm -hmm. mothers and daughters and womanhood and a particular time and place. It's about human beings and Mm -hmm. the relationships between them. It's really fantastic. But you also did grow up in Louisiana for like a significant chunk of your life. I did. Yeah. Did the book sort of like make you think back on that? Like, was it effective at at invoking that specific place for you? So my parents got divorced when I was in uh, like between second and third grade and my father remarried and he had uh, custody of me. The woman that he married has like her entire family were transplants from Southern Mississippi to Wisconsin. The only reason that I bring that up is because they had this like very Southern culture that they I feel like they held on to really strongly the the way that you Mm -hmm. do when you go to a place where you feel othered. They still they've been living there for many, many decades, but they all still have like a Mississippi twang to the way that they talk. And that's not like, like, you know, like people (laughs) drop their accents pretty quick. You got to like concentrate it's still you know it's still all mama it's still all daddy it's Mm -hmm. all you know like all of those great colorful expressions from the south and so Mm -hmm. (laughs) when i was listening to all of this stuff that's what i was really remembering was when i was a small child in wisconsin and being around my step-grandmother and step-great-grandmother these women are are a lot like those women to me but what about you, Anya? How was how was this story hitting you? So I guess I haven't really talked about this on the show yet, but I have not read a lot of fiction books over the past 10 years of my life, I guess. I kind of, um, so I was a voracious reader as a kid. Like I would literally read while walking like the mile home from elementary school to my house. And I just like had enough peripheral vision not to crash into <laughs> things. Um one time I like 
almost set my room on fire because I like really wanted to stay up and read a book. And my mom had like saw that my light was on, like coming out from under the door and she came in and she was like, no, you need to turn that light off and go to bed. It's, you know, it's like super late. And so I, um, I like got a bandana and wrapped it around my like reading lamp by my bed in order to dim the light enough that I could still read but it wouldn't be bright enough that my parents could tell. And as I'm like reading, suddenly like I start to smell like smoke and I look over and the bandana is like, I don't think it was on fire, but it had like, there was like a hole burned in the middle of it and it was like smoking. I've done that before. Um, And I, of course, like I immediately like turned the light off and then like ran into my parents' room and I was like, Uh, I think I must have, I must have been like seven or eight or something at the time. And then, and like through high school, I was just like constantly had a book. I would get in trouble in school for like having a book on my lap during class. Oh, yeah. Me too. Um, and then I got to college <laughs> <laughs> uh, and basically was doing so much reading for my classes um, that I basically stopped pleasure reading and then went to grad school. And mm. we know how that goes. Um, so that's actually... One of the things that I really like about the show is that I'm actually like reading printed books for pleasure again for the first time in a long time. And yeah, it definitely, there's a lot in the book that spoke to me. I think my relationship with my parents is actually like, you know, I mean, like it's complicated in the sense that all parental child Mm -hmm. relationships are complicated, but it's definitely like not that complicated. Um, (laughs) There's a lot of drama. But... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, But I definitely, I really loved the the way the book described the relationship between Sitta and the Yayas, um, because growing up, in addition to my like main nuclear family relationship, I had a lot of sort of like surrogate parents Mm -hmm. who were my friend's parents, um, who I, you know, spent a ton of time at their houses. I had a friend who was an only child, like whenever her family would go on road trips, they would take me with them so that her friend would have a child companion and her parents could have a, like (laughs) hang out with adults, uh, basically like not have to watch. I was the babysitter. (laughs) Yeah, and I would, like, hang out at at my godmother's house. Yeah, I guess it's, like, a very special relationship you have with a young woman with these older women who, like, aren't your mom, but kind of, like, have that maternal-type relationship. And in a way, it's, like, you kind of feel like you can go to them when you can't go to your actual mom because you don't want to make your mother-daughter relationship about Mm. all that drama, you know? (laughs) And so that really resonated with me. You know, I grew up in Texas, and so we definitely have some of that sort of Louisiana Cajun influence. One of the the people who I dated um, in high school, his family was very Cajun. Um, And so, like, his mom taught me, like, how to make pralines um, (laughs) and was like very clear because like in texas they're pralines and and so you know she was like (laughs) i've only heard it pronounced praline (laughs) i know i love how you just said it that's why in texas (laughs) that was great in texas they're pralines in louisiana they're pralines and so like yeah his mom taught me how to make like real louisiana pralines um 
and I had like this great relationship um, with his mom and, and sort of like, I wouldn't say I have a great handle on Cajun culture, but I have like enough of a handle on Cajun culture that like reading the book definitely made me a little bit like homesick, you know, mm-hmm. for a place I've never been. But um, we can talk more about differences between the book and the movie later. But yeah, I agree. The movie is definitely kind of a weird, slightly incomplete version of the book. But I actually do like some of the choices mm-hmm. that they made, I think, better than mm-hmm. the book in some ways. Yeah, one of my favorite quotes is in the movie is uh, after they talk about Vivi's breakdown and everything and telling uh, Sita that it wasn't her fault. And they're like, speak, Bebe. And she goes, oh, I'm just sitting here adding up the thousands and thousands of dollars in my head I spent trying to figure out what the hell I'd done wrong. (laughs) (laughs) That is one of my favorites. And that is so like evocative of like Southern culture is that you can be having these really deep emotional conversations and then on a dime it can switch and you can just like make a joke to just add that levity and I'm sure that it's not like unique to the south but since I've only ever lived in the south it just feels that it is something that's very unique like the dark sense of humor that other people might be oh well that's not really funny it's like you just have to have the mindset that it is actually really funny (laughs) Like I used to joke about going to counseling, like, cause I went to counseling for about a year and people are like, Oh, what are you doing? I was like, Oh, I'm just going to go to a counseling session and cry about my, uh, my daddy being in prison and people would be just kind of look at me <laughs> and I'm like, what? <laughs> I'm like, okay. <laughs> it really threw people off. I feel like Siddeley's kind of like that in the book. Like Vivi's much more, like you said, with that quote, she's much more in line with that quote. But like when Siddeley, she loses that to a degree, right? It becomes like mm-hmm. much more self-serious and she can't, it's like she can't handle all that pressure when she's in New York in the book. And maybe yeah. it is because she doesn't have that freedom to say like, I'm a hot mess. And yeah. I don't know if that's like the Yankee culture has robbed her of something and she needs that book that her mom sends her or like what do you think about that oh i was just gonna say um for people who haven't read the book or watched the movie um i think it might be useful before you answer that question to give just like a little bit more detail um oh sure about (laughs) oh yeah because there are differences um between sita and her mom which is basically that um so Sita has like just made it as a famous director on Broadway and she got interviewed by the New York Times and describing some of the like actual physical abuse that her mom did. So she's like at this weird point in her life where she doesn't know what to do and be- she accidentally estranges herself from her mother and I feel like she is less equipped to deal with it because for one thing, she doesn't have the friendships like Vivi did of the Yaya's, Mm -hmm. but also she has lost her kind of Southern culture and she, she feels alienated, I think uh, to a certain degree in the North. And so I was like, that's what I see, but I don't know if Sarah sees that or if there's like, like any transplant syndrome or like, you know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. Her friends are trying to help her, but they're not doing a good job because it's not the way that she needs help. I feel like Sita's whole thing is a generational type thing because 
the Yaya's mm. generation, and I have seen this in my own life, where there is just things that in Southern culture, it's like we just don't talk about it. It happened, and we're going to move mm-hmm. past it. And like even with stuff that happened when my daddy got arrested, we we dealt with it and everything, but it wasn't something where um, it was very sort of like, even though we have the cops involved, it was still very much sort of like, oh, we're going to handle this within the family and sort of have people like within uh, the family kind of help things out. And I think with Sita, her whole thing of like this sort of new agey thing of going and talking to a therapist and trying to analyze yourself. That's just (laughs) something that the yayas just don't do and they don't understand. They just want to like self-medicate and talk amongst themselves about what happened. And like my dad, he's the same way. Like even we have like a very weird relationship now, but he's just sort of like, I don't really see the point of counseling and going in there and talking about your problems. It's like, it happened. Let's just move on. And just like, no, but you have to deal with what's happened. And I think that with Sita, her whole issue is that it's, it's very much like they kind of touch on it in the movie where it's like this core thread of like, what if, what happened, what what is inside my mom that was inherently broken inside her? What if that's in me too? And I just, I don't know if I can handle, because like in the book, Sita is terrified that Connor is going to leave her because that's what Vivi did. And there wasn't any sort of explanation. Nobody ever talked about it. Vivi was just mm. gone and then she came back. And Sita's like, what if... Like, I can't handle someone else important to me making myself vulnerable and putting myself out there only to be left again. And I think that because Sita didn't have all of the facts and she was sitting here and she was struggling with that, that that was what was sort of stopping her because she didn't have all of it because, again, nobody talked about it. And Carol talks about that later in the book where she says, that's what I regret the most is that we didn't talk to you kids about what happened because of this archaic notion that you don't interfere with other people's kids, which is another thing that is very inherent in Southern culture. It's just like, that's not your family. That's not our business. We don't pry in other people's business. The thing that I think is really at the core of the story is how difficult it can really be for one generation to understand the experiences of Mm -hmm. the another generation and kind of like even see them as, as real and like complicated people. Right. It's something that, that everyone goes through with your parents, you know, and, and people sort of figure it out at different times, just depending on their life experiences and, and how their parents are. But like, I remember as a teen having a moment where it was like, Oh, like, (laughs) like my parents are people and they are, you know, they're flawed, but they're trying their hardest because of of the nature of Sita's relationship with Vivi. She like never really got to see her mom as a full human. And in order to forgive her mom, she has to be able mm. to understand her. The relationship between Sita and Vivi is really the focus of the book, but you can see the exact same kind of process going on um, as like the B plot between Mm -hmm. uh, Vivi and her mom, Buggy, 
you know, the mother figure based on just like the patriarchy and and society is like flawed and fucked up. And when Buggy steals the ring off of Vivi's finger and basically accuses yeah. her of having sex with her dad or whatever, you know, like at her core, she was trying mm-hmm. to do a good thing. She was trying to save her soul, but it ended up causing more damage than it helped. I think you can definitely read Vivi's parenting style as like trying so hard not to make the same mistakes yeah. with her kids that Buggy made with her. You know, and so she tries really hard to make sure that her children always feel loved the way that she gives them like their special birthday situations. Mm-hmm. And like when she takes Sita on the elephant mm-hmm. slash airplane yeah. <laughs> ride, <laughs> depending on which version you're doing. <laughs> um, Vivi really is trying her hardest. And, and then I think through the course of the book, Sita really sees that and forgive her for those failures it's like we're all just trying to be less fucked up than our own parents and like hopefully we succeed i think another thing that's really sort of connective where we learn where it's maybe necessarily that sita and vivi don't learn this about each other but how similar they are where vivi in her flashback she's always talking about having to hold herself back and try and present this image to one group of people, like all of her friends at school. Whereas um, in with Sita, she has to hold herself back to a certain extent because she does not want to overshadow Vivi. And she has to be a little mama to her siblings, essentially like they're rereading this book this time around. There was one particular part that struck me so hard. And I actually want to read it because um, like, like you said, Alan, you were doing housework and talking about different parts of the book and it's just having you crying. And I did a huge mistake. I was listening to this book at work and I listened to this one particular passage and I just had to pause it and collect myself. Cause I just started crying at my desk it's towards (laughs) it's in chapter 26 where we we kind of get the story and we have these letters Sita reads from herself to Vivi and then she reads the letters that Vivi writes to the Yaya's thanking them for what they did and the passage that made me bawl my eyes out was from Teensy the Teensy letter where she says she's still taking care of the others a little bitty mama The nurse at the hospital told me to write even if I'm crying, she said to keep on writing. Nisi told me how you picked up Sita and took her to the movies with you once a week, just the two of you. And how you had to convince her that it was okay to just sit there in the dark and watch Haley Mills and sip her Coke and run to the lobby to use the phone to check on the other kids. I want to thank you the most for Sita's nightgown because it reminds me that she is a little girl. And that was the part where it just pierced my soul. And I was like, damn it, this book, even now, all these years later, it gets me because like one of my whole things because of what happened with my dad and even before all that is that I had to grow up a lot quicker and I knew things about my parents' marriage and I saw things about my parents' marriage that other kids don't necessarily see. And because I was the oldest, I took a certain burden of responsibility on myself that other people didn't necessarily do. And it's like, I don't like, one thing is that my mom would 
tell me things and vent to me about things about the marriage between my mom and her because she didn't have anybody else to talk to because my dad was such a controlling dick at the time. And it was very much sort of like, we don't talk about stuff that's outside this family because if people hear, they're going to they're gonna take you away. And do you want to get taken away? Like he would constantly threaten us where it's like, if we talk to a counselor, if we talk to strangers, then they were going to call DHS and take us away. And it, it, it didn't occur to me where it's like, okay, well, what is it about this situation that is so bad that that would happen? That didn't occur to me. So I would, I would essentially be like my mom's kind of bosom buddy. And I would sit there and she would unload this stuff on me. And I don't blame her because of the controlling situation that my dad had her under. But it's just like, looking back, it's like, yeah, that wasn't an ideal situation. I shouldn't have known the stuff that I knew about my parents' marriage. And I shouldn't have had to experience that stuff. But it's just the fucked up situation that I was in, I had to. And we see that to a certain extent with Sita, is that she had to help take care of her siblings. And she had to shoulder some of the emotional burden because... Shep wasn't there to do it. Shep was going to either be working or off in the duck camp. And Vivi, she just she just wasn't prepared to, to take care of four kids all by herself. So she relied on Sita a lot more than maybe was necessarily needed. Oh, yeah. It was not healthy at all. Yeah. yeah. For sure. Yeah, because like her, like Anya was saying, she didn't want to be her mother all over again to these kids. But then she's like... Who can I be? And the only other mother that is in her life for her to look at is uh, the mother of Jesus, the the Virgin Mary. And she like resents Mary. She's like, are you kidding me? Like, how am I going to live up to that? So like for her, she's got this on one side, she's got this terrible mother example. On the other side, she's got this impossible standard. And then all of her wants and desires she's told are sinful and mm-hmm. she just can't handle that burden. Like that tears her apart. Yeah. And she collapses she, and she has nobody. Her husband's not there for her. I mean, she doesn't have nobody. She has the yayas, you know, luckily. Yeah. But yeah. It's, it's, uh, that part is so powerful. That's, I yeah. think that's why, you know, it's like essentially the climax. No, you do, you did a really good job of sort of like painting the picture of the, the like impossible situation that, a lot of women were in during that time. And that's like kind of what, what Sita didn't understand, but like the priest basically telling her like, yeah, like you have to be completely selfless 100% of the time, any concept of, of like self care. And that like the husbands were doing absolutely nothing. Like it's so ridiculous that when Vivi went away to the hospital, that wasn't a hospital, you know, like, who takes care of the kids? Certainly not their dad. That would be ridiculous. No, of course not. That's insane. <laughs> and yeah. Nisi has to, like, go out to the duck camp and sober Shep yeah. up. They definitely sanitize Shep a lot in <laughs> in the movie. Um, and they give him, like, they yeah. make him much less neglectful and absent. Um, they, like, up his likability and give him a, mu- a much more meaningful relationship with Sita than he has in the book. It's like the scene that encapsulates that is when uh, Vivi and Shep are fighting and she, Vivi storms out and she's like, I don't care if you starve to death. And then Sid is like, okay, I'll finish making dinner, daddy. And he's like, okay, yeah. don't touch it. It's hot. I'll pick it up. But he's like, thank you. He's like, I'm not going to cook it. Certainly yeah. not me. 
yeah, my childhood was very similar with the having to step into a co-parenting mm-hmm. role with the kids and stuff like that. And I had a hard time connecting with Sita in general when I when I read the book. I was much more into uh, Vivi. I feel like she overwhelms the book in a way of like when you read Moby Dick, like ostensibly it's about Ishmael, but really it's like about Ahab, Mm -hmm. you know, like Ahab's the one where you're like, wow, this guy, he's nuts. Like I'm way more into him. I feel like Vivi is like really the main character of the book and or that she's so powerful in the book that like Sita kind of orbits her like everybody orbits her. I feel like. Yeah. But you were saying how. You know, you were in therapy and and how Southern culture is much more all about self-therapy. And I was thinking about that with the book and this, like, I'm all about religion and stuff like that. And so mm-hmm. I see religion and everything. But when the it, when it's in the title, The Divine Secrets of the Yaya Sisterhood, I was like, ooh, religion's like baked into this thing. They create like their own miniature mythology about their friendship. And I found that so interesting because that's like a form of therapy that Carl Jung talked about where we self mythologize our experience where, you know, like Freudian style of therapy would be about like investigating your past. It's much more like what Sid is doing where you're like reliving your past experience and you're recontextualizing it through a different lens of like more mature and more informed. But like the way that Vivi is living her life and the way that she tells a story to herself and to her friends about her life, she kind of authors it in a way where, no, we are not these little girls who are subject to the culture around us and to the parents that are in control of our lives. We are princesses of a Mm -hmm. secret society that has always existed. And we are more powerful than the Virgin Mother Mary. And, you know, like they wipe her face off the statue that, you know, they literally deface her. We don't understand how we're living this life in the, in the world. Like we understand it on a subconscious level And then that arises in us as a story, as a myth. And then we tell that myth to ourselves. That's where our religions come from. That's where our ancient myths come from. It's not that those things are literally true, but that's the way that it feels to be alive and that those girls needed that story to survive these circumstances of like the weird Southern culture where we don't talk about the problems that we have or we don't recognize that like my mother is mad at me because she thinks I'm in an incestuous relationship. She's not mad at the man who would be abusing me if that was true. She's mad at me for having some kind of incestual transactional relationship where I got a ring for sex. Mm-hmm. You know, why not be mad at him? Why is she mad at me? Very internalized misogyny there. <laughs> with Yeah. Becky. She has those yayas there to protect her from that culture. I feel like everything is subculturized and like we're a family, we're a religion, we're our own thing. Like that's what I kept seeing through this entire book. And like, I don't know if the if the author was thinking about Carl Jung or anything when she wrote it. But like, to me, I see Carl Jung all over Vivi. And then like Siddeley's trying to do the whole freudian thing of like <laughs> no actually her uh her analyst is a jungian analyst 
Oh, is it? Which <laughs> to me was like, that. is that a 90s That's weird. thing? Because I, I feel like that is a weird uh, artifact. Nobody of the does 90s. that anymore. Yeah, like nobody does Jungian, analysts, an- Jungian no. analysis anymore. Maybe it was like a very New York City thing. <laughs> oh, there you go. That You know what? You're probably right. Because this is like, yeah, from the Southern perspective, they'd be like, yeah, that's the most New York 90s thing. That's probably, yeah. <laughs> You're probably exactly right. Yeah. And I feel like when if we're talking about their mythology, we have to at least mention the fact that the mythology that the Yayas create for themselves is like, very heavily appropriated from white perceptions of Native American rituals Mm -hmm. and religion, which strikes me as like certainly internally racist, but also like extremely accurate for something that would have happened. Like, fuck, like in the 1990s, I was in a co-ed camping group called fucking Indian Guides. Like it was run by the YMCA. And like the whole thing was just like a hot mess of of like weird native appropriation. There's a a Jonathan Taylor Thomas movie about it. Um, I mean, not oh yeah yeah yeah, <laughs> not like a that. yeah the hey how are you hey how are you um, <laughs> yeah. And that program has since been renamed. I think like Campfire Kids or something. But um, which which thank God <laughs> I'm not surprised at how it was handled considering the book was like written in the 90s about the 60s. Mm-hmm. I'm not really sure if there was a better way to handle the Native American appropriation. I don't know. It like it reads to me as like very authentic, authentically racist within the text. I think sometimes that you just kind of have to say that it was very much of its time where it's like, cause like rereading this even now that the racial components to this story really did kind of jump out at me. Cause I'm trying to be more conscious of that stuff and try to be a, a good ally and feel like, Hey, we need more representation of all people. Not cause I'm a white person. I'm the most represented person ever, but Hey, <laughs> uh, African Americans need more representation, Asian Americans, Latinos, all those people they need to say in the culture. So like looking at that, I just saw, I was like, Oh yeah, that's, that's problematic as fuck. But sometimes you just have to, I think that sometimes you just have to be like, it's just a problematic element because they didn't know any better. They're going to be like, yeah, it's totally fine. Like even now we still have freaking national football teams or sports teams or whatever that are like what the Washington Redskins yeah, or whatever. Yeah. Although they did, there was some team that recently retired a logo. Was it that maybe the, like the Cleveland Indians logo? Yes. I think, yeah. Yep. They just, so they're keeping the name, but at least they're like, getting rid of the like super cartoony racist um chief wahoo chief wahoo yeah yeah (laughs) you have to point it out like you can't just skip over it Mm -hmm. i think and like we talked about with lonnie a couple of episodes ago i feel like you know when we read this stuff in our own time like we should notice those things but we should also like consider not just the time when it was written but also the time that it's representing so like when mm-hmm. vivi is creating the mythology of the yayas and she needs to reach back to a pre-christian time she's going to reach for the native culture yeah, yeah. and to insert herself into that as a white girl i don't even think that occurs to her that there might be some kind of transgressive, like culturally transgressive 
problem with that because she's like, well, why not? I mean, to leave alone the fact that Vivi is like a narcissist yeah. <laughs> on a certain <laughs> level, right? Because <laughs> she, she is uh, the queen, queen dancing creek. And everyone right. else is like countess and duchess and stuff right. like that. But she's right. the queen. <laughs> One thing that I took away, because you were talking about the self-mythologizing, is that I also took it in a way that these girls are kind of creating a matriarchy within this very patriarchal society where it's like we have to band together as women. It's very sort of female-centric. like, And even in like the broader sense, as they got older – the the relationships between the yayas and their husbands are secondary to the relationship between the yayas like the anniversary of their friendship seems to be more important than the anniversaries between the yayas and their husbands like sita even says that she remembers them celebrating the yaya anniversary of their friendship more than they ever celebrated the the men's relationship with their wives and it's very sort of like this society where it's like a lot of these men are super intimidated by these women. And it's kind of like really super awesome and, and empowering. They refuse to dampen their life force for the expense of these men around them that they're like, no, we're going to assert ourselves and we don't care if you like it or not. Yeah, I, I love that. I love that. Jinx. <laughs> since, we're, since we're talking about the 90s, I feel like I had to go there. Um, and the powerful bond between the Yayas that Sita, you know, is so jealous of it. She, like, can't recreate that kind of bond in her own life. Like, she measures all of her friendships against it, and they all come up short, even if they are, like, really awesome, deep friendships. Like, um... Is it May and Sorensen who come? May Sorensen and uh, Wade. Wade, yeah. So when May and Wade go and visit her when she's in the cabin, like we get enough of their relationship on the page to know that like they have really deep bonds, but it's still like it can't compete with Vivi's magical influence and the and sort of like the bonds forged in patriarchy. <laughs> Yeah, and I think part of that's generational too. Mm-hmm. You're, you guys are completely right about how this whole story is like all about the friction that comes from the generations looking back and looking forward. Like I think because yeah. there's not just city city looking back at Vivi's life and, and and at her life, it's also that Vivi is looking at her daughter's life in this really envious way, right? Where yeah. she yeah. like all of the dreams that she had for herself are a lot of the things that Sita does. You know, there's the one scene where, where Vivi gets drunk at Sita's party and then, Oh oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So talk about that a little bit. Like, how do you think that that plays out? Like what, I can't remember exactly what she says to Sita, but like who gave you permission or something like that. Right. Yeah. To produce Arthur Miller and what do you know? Yeah. And and so we're talking about this, like how she mythologized her own matriarchy and how she had to live under this patriarchy with all these limited choices. And she's, you know, shipped off to all girls Catholic school and her daughter doesn't have to deal with any of that and learns 
whether she liked it or not, this kind of intense self-reliance, right? Because she had to raise the family in the absence of her mother. And then she can live out all of those dreams and, and maximize her potential because even though, you know, it's not like the patriarchy left, but its power is diminished in her time and her generation. And then Vivi, you know, Vivi looks at that and goes like, well, goddamn you, like you have everything that I wanted and now I don't. And, and I feel like that's part of the reason why she sends her the book too, right? Because she sees her turning away from the possibility of love and she goes, no, 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 no. I missed out on the love of my life. Don't yeah. you do it too. And I think that another thing about that scene is that even Vivi or Sita even says it where she's like, she forgot to thank Vivi in her speech where mm. Sita, she has this big, bright, shining moment and she gets bigger than Vivi and she doesn't make it somehow about Vivi and Vivi can't stand it. Like as much as she wants her daughter to ex- succeed and live out her dreams, kind of like the Disney version of what we see in the movie where she's like all of my dreams all in one thing and there you were. Whereas the Vivi in the book, she would never, I don't think that she'd ever really admit that it's like, oh, all of these awesome things that I wanted to have for myself, I have them through you. And how awesome is that? Vivi in the book wouldn't ever admit to that, I feel. Right. She would still just sort of be really envious of her daughter because she feels that it should have been her. And she lives vicariously through Sitta, but then she is also very jealous of Sitta because Sitta is getting to have the life that Vivi only dreamed about having and was was constricted and prevented from having because of the bonds of her time. I was actually wanting to see if maybe y'all wanted to talk about the narrative of the story because it is kind of really weird the way that this story is structured. It's not structured like a, a traditional story with all of these no. flashbacks. <laughs> it's very sort of like very fluid, which I think that it might be a block for some people. It reminds me very much of the South where it just sort of flows and it has its own sort of time. It's going to get to the point, but we're going to, we're going to stop and smell the roses along the way, but not to the detriment (laughs) of the story, at least in my opinion. (laughs) The past itself isn't even a linear storyline, right? It's not like two linear storylines, both proceeding like alongside each other. They're sort of like the present is linear and the past is all jumbled and sort of out of order. Mm-hmm. Just to add to that, like it also kind of alternates between Vivi's stories and Sita's recollections. Mm-hmm. Like you get the Vivi version and then you'll get like the Sita side. So it's not just two narratives. It's kind of like three. You got Vivi's version of the past, Sita's version of the past, and then Sita's. I think of it as the frame. Because we kind of begin and end with it, even though it like pops up over and over throughout the narrative. Sita's entire thing about will she, won't she, like what's the next step in her life is a a kind of an excuse within the story to dive into this chronicle that the Yayas have collected. And then that's where the story lives, is in that book. Who is the protagonist? Who is the antagonist? What is the conflict? There's a lot of like internal conflict yeah. i feel like <laughs> on on two sides and to a certain degree like i feel like sida wants her mother's blessing and 
Vivi wants to, she doesn't want to make it about Sita. She wants it to be about her. Mm-hmm. And she, but she knows that that's wrong. And, but she doesn't want to ever admit it. You yeah. know, like in the book, she sends her the divine secrets. And I feel like that is as close as she can come to saying, like, I love you. I'm sorry. And I want to help. But she'll never say it. She, she sends it to her and she says, you're dead to me. You yeah. know, like it's a very mixed message. And when Sid is like, can you, can you like write out these memories? Can you try and explain these things to me? Please help me process it. And Vivi's like, I don't owe you a damn thing. I sent you the damn secrets. Like I'm not my my life isn't some sort of vivisection. I'm not going to split myself open so that you can analyze me. It's that very Freudian versus Jungian thing. I really <laughs> feel like that's in the book where where she is like, I sent you the Bible and you want me to send you a history book. Like read mm-hmm. the Bible, like read the story and understand the story. Don't try and understand the, you know, hard facts and reality. That's not how life works. Yeah. What Sita needs from her mother is like something she can never give mm-hmm. by nature of who she is. They try and tie up in a neat bow in the movie is that this this whole thing where she's like the whole the end scene on the porch goes very different from how the end scene in the book is where we do get that sort of Vivi acknowledging like even the fact that she talks to Connor about dropping her basket and like again this is so diametrically opposed to the Vivi that's in the book it's a, like the need for like Hollywood and like people needing to have that sort of like resolution and real life is really not like that <laughs> where uh, uh, Anya, you talked about in uh, y'all's Buffy episode talking about like wanting you like talk to your abusers and gave them the olive branch to sort of apologize. And then they're like, no, I didn't do anything wrong. And I feel that that is something where this book kind of deals with like the nature of abuse and like some people might not necessarily understand why people are still in contact to a certain extent with their abusers and that you just kind of have to understand that sometimes like family and like the stuff that family puts us through, it's very complicated. Like I, I talked to my dad, like I had to put some distance between us for a while, but now I have some sort of relationship with my dad. I don't forgive what he did to us, but like my fam- my mom asked me this. She's like, why do you still have a relationship with him? And it's like, I don't think it's something that I can really explain other than saying he's my dad. And I just want him in my life. I don't excuse what he did, but I just, I want him to be there and like, I'm never going to get an apology from him. That's going to make up for what he did to me and my family. And like, I had my own kind of personal New York times article moment with my dad where I was in therapy and my therapist was like, okay, you have to write, you need to write out this letter because so much of what I was doing and and it infuriated my mom that my aunts let me write him and then she didn't want me to stop. But I had fallen back into that pattern of wanting to make him happy and wanting to please daddy. And my therapist was like, this is not really healthy. So you need to sort of confront him and tell him what he did to you. 
and I worked on it for weeks and I worked on it with my aunt and I worked on it with my counselor and I sent this to him and oh wow yeah I sent it to him and I talked about how he made me feel that I had to work to to make sure that everything was spotless in order for him to love me and it was just like all of this stuff mm. it was like this big long letter and I was so proud of myself because I was just like it was for the first time and this was even before I got the divine secrets that I acknowledged that he abused me too it wasn't to the extent that for what he was put in prison for I've just wanted him to acknowledge hey this is what you did to me and my grandparents had just died when, and he was going through some upheaval with my aunt who helped me write it. And there was all this other stuff. And he wrote back and he said, oh, he could see that I wasn't even going to bother asking for his side of the story. And because I even talked about how he treated my mom like shit and you made her feel like garbage. And she was an amazing person. And he just completely deflected it. And he goes, this is just you being manipulated by your mother, being manipulated by your aunt. And you, he just lashed out at me and I was heartbroken. And I wrote him and I was like, can I please have that letter back? Because it meant so much to me to write it. And he said that he had torn it up and he flushed it down the toilet. So oh my it God. was soul crushing. So like, and eventually I had to, to stop writing him and to stop trying to make him feel better because I was going back into those habits where I was like, oh, hey, I still wanted him to make, to try and take care of him and everything, even though I didn't think that he didn't deserve to be in prison. I was like, you totally deserve to be there. But I was still trying to take care of him emotionally without getting anything back. That's definitely like the point that this story comes into too, right? Mm -hmm. Like where, you know, Vivi has made everything always about her, like in that terrible, like coming out thing where she's like, how dare you interpret Arthur Miller? Who do you mm -hmm. think you are? And then where it finally does break through and Sid is like, I have to take care of me. I have to understand. I have these needs and you owe me answers. Like that's the tipping point of the story. That's the, that's what it is. And, and that's the clear message of the book from the Sida um, story, right? That you have to take care of yourself. You have to reconcile that past yeah. of she has to reconcile her abuse. She has to, and even if that means that she has to understand that, yeah, her mother is a human being who was also abused. And so, okay, now I can forgive you. Now I can understand these things. Mm -hmm. But she has to also admit to herself that she was abused and that, you know, everybody was just doing the best they could. Yeah. It's a, it's so hard when, when you are, and I'm sorry that, you know, all those things happen to you. Like I sympathize with that enormously. Like as someone who went through abuse when I was a kid, it's, it's so hard to like take care of yourself and look back and not, you know, reenact all these same things over and over again down the generations and it's you know like you said at the beginning it's it's part of the power of fiction is to throw this mirror up at ourselves mm -hmm. and then we go like oh wait a minute like 
I have to change and this is a roadmap to how this all works. And it, you know, it's a priceless gift that a book like this can be mm-hmm. in your life. Yeah. Well, and I think too, in the way that the book compares Buggy and Vivi versus Vivi and Sita, there are echoes and similarities between those two relationships, but they're also like located at different points along a spectrum of abuse, mm-hmm. right? Like exactly. Sita forgives Vivi in a way that Vivi can never forgive Buggy yeah. just because Mm-hmm. The amount of harm and the type of harm was so different. Yeah. And their intentions towards their daughters mm-hmm. were so different. Like, when Vivi beat her children, she was literally, like, out of her mind, kind of having a psychotic yeah. break. She worked really hard to show her children a lot of love mm-hmm. And really, like, see them and recognize them as people in a way that, like, Buggy never tried. So much of Buggy is just warped by the Catholic Church. And I never grew up under any specific dogma. Like, I, we were a lot more non-denominational in our household. But there are some similarities. Like, the scene with the priest. Like, I have a bumper sticker or like a, a saying that came from a bumper sticker calendar that so encapsulates my views on organized religion, where it's like, I don't have any problem with God. It's his followers I can't stand because God was the <laughs> one that kind of saved me from the situation with my dad where I was literally collapsed. Like a week before he would, like everything about my dad came out. I had collapsed in our driveway. It was literally raining and it was a giant thunderstorm outside. And I was taking out the trash and I was so emotionally exhausted because my dad had just like, he was going off and he was ranting about how if we didn't clean the house, we were so fucking lazy that if we didn't clean the house this week, that he was going to build a paddle and he was going to come back home and he was going to beat the hell out of us. And I was terrified and I went and I threw up and I begged my mom because she was a nurse that she worked nights. And I was like, please, please, please don't go to work. I'm afraid he's going to hurt us. And my mom went to him and she says, Bobby, you've got to calm down. You're scaring the kids. And he just looked at her and said, I don't give a fuck anymore. And I, my brain was in shock because I'm like, this is my dad. I don't understand how he can say something like that. So He left to go on a beer run with my uncle. And I remember taking out the trash. He told me to take out the trash. And it was raining outside. And I remember dragging this heavy bag of trash down the driveway. And I just collapsed because the bag busted open. And I just threw up because of the smell and because I was so exhausted. And I just remember crying out, please make him go away. I don't care how you do it. Just make him go away. And literally like two days later... A week. He was literally arrested the day of my him and my mom's what would have been their wedding anniversary. It was like maybe a week or two oh, later. Wow. And that was God. That was that's what I believe. That was God. He heard my prayer and then he he saved us. But at the same time, it was his followers that tried to shame my mother 
for what happened, saying, well, oh, if only you'd done more, if you'd have been a better wife. What? Oh my God, it was infuriating. In religion, it's remarkable how the onus of responsibility seems to fall on the women in the family and the men are able to just walk away scot-free. You just have to be the providers Mm. and the women are the one that have to take care of the physical and the spiritual and the emotional and the mental well-being of everyone in the family and the fucking men don't have to do shit. Like, I haven't been able to go back to the church and like, I have been trying to find other ways to sort of like connect with my spirituality because I still do have belief in God and that I genuinely believe that he saved me and my family. But his, his, the majority of his freaking followers, I just, I can't even with those people. Yeah, I think the portrayal of religion is really interesting. I mean, it's like Catholicism, and you get that like hardcore traditional Catholicism in the school for mm-hmm. delinquent ladies or whatever. <laughs> but the way that religion is actually enacted by the yayas is like, it's a very Creole, fast and loose Cajun Catholicism. I mean, I guess I don't know that much about it, but it seemed kind of interesting and authentic to me from the outside yeah i love nisi's little comment where she's like i would know y'all have re- reinvented the catholic church to suit y'all's needs <laughs> yeah <laughs> which i love <laughs> like referring to god the father as old podna <laughs> yeah <laughs> Speaking of the movie, uh, like we can touch on it briefly, like the different because we kind of talked about how um, we've been touching on it throughout the discussion. But like one thing that y'all mentioned was the accent work on this movie. Yeah, (laughs) and in the audio book, because I also listened to the audio book, too. I I, like I had my book copy and then also have the audio book. And I think that the actresses Vivi like in the audiobook and to a certain extent uh the older version of Vivi the actress's name escapes me but i feel that it's very sort of like the way that Sandra Bullock describes it where it's like Scarlett O'Hara oh how i've suffered somebody grab me a nebutal and fix me a drink Scarlett O'Hara thing <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's definitely like high mm-hmm. society georgia a lot of it and yeah it's yes, yeah, Ellen it Burstyn, who plays Vivi, is totally doing that. And yeah, in the audiobook as well. Like I can excuse that to a certain extent because New York, LA, that's like what America is. And so to those people, Georgia is like mm-hmm. that is a southern accent. And to people who live in the <laughs> I South, don't talk it's about like that. no. <laughs> yeah. That's Georgia. it's like one part of Georgia. It's not even like if you get into Georgia, it's only like, oh yeah, those people talk like that. And man, in the audio book, like the way that she did teensy, you know, backwoods, Cajun, you know, Creole kind of accent. I'm like, oh my God, I want to claw my ears off of my head for the way that you are doing this. What are you talking? This is, nobody talks like this, <laughs> let alone Cajun people. Like no one sounds like that. It sounds like when she's doing teensy, she does like yeah. a French accent and then she's trying to cross it up with Georgian. And it's like, whoa, no. no. I feel like with <laughs> a lot of majority of Southern accents, 
people so much just want to go over the top with them. And it's like, we do have like a certain twang mm-hmm. too, but it's not like an overall twang where everything that we say is like this. It's only with certain words and phrases <laughs> that you can be like, oh yeah, there's that that hint. And like, sometimes it's not even a twang. It's more of a drawl where it's like, it's not, we're not going somewhere. We're going somewhere. Mm-hmm. The one in the movie that I really appreciated um, is, ironically, Maggie Smith as Caro. As really, (laughs) it it felt subtle to me, like as compared to maybe say Ellen Burstyn's like gigantic, overblown type of Scarlet impression. It was more subtle, but it also struck me as, like, very inaccurate. I, like, wasn't sure how much of the subtlety was, was like, intentional or versus, like, Maggie Smith's just, like, not having control of it. All of the accents are pretty off from a Louisiana accent. I don't think I've ever seen a movie or a television show that's like, we're in Louisiana where they get it right. The people in New Orleans sound like they're New Yorkers. Like, honestly, that's the way that, and it's very specific Mm -hmm. to like a part of New Orleans. But then when you go south of there, like they're all Cajun and they sound totally different. And the people over by Texas have more of a Texas thing going, you know, like. Yeah, I used to live in East Texas, right on the border of Texas and Louisiana. Yeah. And it's like this weird, like, I've lived in the South all of my life. And I don't think that anybody, anyone would be able to peg down exactly where I'm from just based on like my voice. If I were to be like, hey, where do you think I'm from? People would be like, "Uh?" (laughs) huh? Authentic Louisiana accents don't sound Southern to the mainstream American ear, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. And so they have to borrow. You yeah. know, that the Georgia accent is like the classic one. Yeah. But even like the teensy in the in the movie, like the older mm-hmm. one uh, who is uh, Fianula Flanagan, who actually she was remember her from Shadows and Shambler. She was in um, she was the grandmother in the in the flashbacks with the Mad yes. Sweeney episode. Oh, yeah. I knew I recognized her from somewhere. (laughs) Yeah, when I was watching uh, American Gods, I was like, oh, my God, it's Teensy. It's Teensy. (laughs) She she loves Matt Sweeney. Yeah, that's weird, right? (laughs) Oh, my God. Knowing that she's Irish just makes that. But exactly. They have like, like a, a bunch of fucking British people playing these like old southern <laughs> ladies. It's very sort of like when Vivian Lee played Scarlett yeah. O'Hara in Gone yes. with the Wind. Which they complain about in the book. Because of Tallulah Bankhead, yeah. Tallulah Darlin. <laughs> yeah. Should have been great. Tallulah Darlin. <laughs> um, so other book things. I like that they didn't have to roofie Sitta. Yes. Um, <laughs> What a like weird I, choice. I understand why they didn't want most of the movie to take place in the Olympic Peninsula of Washington State, because um, the movie doesn't have as much space as the book does. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and you know, they wanted it to feel, like, really anchored in Louisiana. Yeah. But I just, <laughs> I wish they could have, like, I don't care how contrived it had to be, just, like, less rapey, please. Yeah. <laughs> It's supposed to be like the yayas will cross lines and like, you know, be transgressive and weird, but it but is it, too weird. 
It like it reads very different in 2018 than I think they intended yeah. it. And yeah, mm-hmm. Jesus. And the fact that Carol gets it from a guy at the club. Hey, we're just gonna totally <laughs> yeah, yeah. cross over that that this dude's just got roofies. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. Who the hell knows what is in that shit? Like, what if they had accidentally given her Molly? I don't know if Molly existed yeah. back then, and then she just like started hugging them all. That would have led right. to very different. <laughs> oh, she's a walker. I mean, she can take it. I'm like, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I do like though. The movie is much more focused on just Sita and Vivi, mm-hmm. and that um, it like implies that now. Sita has worked through her shit enough to be open to love and will go on to marry Connor. But like the final scene in the book is their actual wedding. And I almost felt like I didn't need that because the relationship with Sita and Connor wasn't the focus of the book. Yeah. Like really it should have ended on the porch with Sita and Vivi dancing around trying to get the tears into the little tear jar (laughs) Rebecca Wells felt like she needed to move Shep in some way because he was so much of a less sympathetic character in the Mm -hmm. book so they had him grow the sunflowers and then they like set the scene for the wedding but I feel like they could have accomplished that in a different way Shep is such a weird character like even throughout all of the books like his relationship with Vivi it is very sort of much their marriage is very much the marriage of convenience where it's like you don't mm-hmm. really buy the relationship between Shep and Vivi because Shep was just very much of his time and hey, this is what the man was supposed to do and the woman's supposed to take care of everything else and like him trying to be like the cute cuddly dad who played by the late great James Garner who I adore but it's just like yeah, oh, he's that's, great. That's not Shep. <laughs> but the, I think there was a good moment in the movie with them that I found kind of heartbreaking, where where she says like, uh, I, "I'm did I ruin your life? I'm sorry if I did." And he says to her, "I thought I ruined mm. yours." You know, yeah. Like, as, and and I was like, "Oh God!" Like that's so heartbreaking, and you could feel that that probably echoed backwards in time for both of them that they've always felt that way throughout the whole marriage. Yeah, and that something healed there. That's that was nice. I liked that. Yeah, I really like movie Shrep and Vivi and their relationship better, which is you know not to say that there aren't good things about book Shrep, but I really liked what the movie did with him. Yeah. You can't beat James Garner. He's amazing. (laughs) Yeah. One thing that I did like about the book better was that Sita's siblings actually exist as adult humans. Like (laughs) Jeff and Layla. It's weird. Yeah. I mean they don't play a huge role in the book, but they at least show up enough that it's not weird that they're not there more. And I feel that the movie kind of waffles on whether or not Little Ship actually exists. Oh, I didn't even notice that. <laughs> I guess because I, I watched the movie first. So I guess Lonnie talks about the difference between being realistic and being believable. Like, it was so unrealistic that it was also unbelievable. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. The movie and the book do, I think, a decent job of sort of laying out the, like, class and race mm-hmm. landscape of the South at that time, right? Because, like, 
they're rich enough that they have black servants and maids, but when they go to Atlanta, like they're not really high society in the same way that like Teensy's mm-hmm. family is. You know, for lots of white people in the South, it was like, well, we're poor, but at least we're not black. Or there's definitely like a difference, even though some people don't want to admit it between being white broke and being like black broke. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Especially in Southern Louisiana. And I guess that's kind of a good segue into a larger conversation about how race is depicted Mm -hmm. in the book. I guess maybe before we get into it, I wanted to play a little clip from that episode of Still Processing that I made both of you listen to. Look, it's 2018. Can't black women do more on screen than just be somebody's mom or just be somebody's sex object? Mm -hmm. They're either sexual objects and nude or they're caring for white children, not black children. We can't get away from these archetypes. Starting with Gone with the Wind is is the place that you typically start mm-hmm. when talking about black women in the movies. Starred Hattie McDaniel and Butterfly McQueen. Great name. They had the two biggest speaking parts among the slaves. A lot of the parts around this time were basically what they played. And it wasn't as though Hattie McDaniel's winning this Oscar opened any doors for black women mm. to do more than that. Interesting. They got more opportunities to do what she did. Got it. Basically. Got it. During the black exploitation era where where black women had a little bit more to do and they definitely weren't playing maids, but there were a lot of all the black men that you that we worship in these movies, you meet their mothers at some point. And part of the mm. thing that they're trying to 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 fight against is getting their mothers out of working white people's houses. But isn't that a little bit different? I mean, not to get too derailed, but isn't that a little bit different? Because that's sort of, that was a reality of black families at that time. Oh, yeah, women of course, of, the, you of know, course. The, the women in the families were often domestics. And so that's a way of trying to recast something that's circumstantial mm-hmm. versus being only seen as white producers and white directors and white screenwriters yes. as domestics. Yes. Don't, you know, the, this, there's a slight inverse thing that's happening there. Okay, so then Oprah's asked to host Saturday Night Live. I didn't know about it, but you told me some real suspect things happened during that episode. Let the people know what went down. Well, you can't find it on the internet now. It's been scrubbed. Basically, in this cold open, Lauren Michaels knocks on Oprah's dressing room door. And he wants to know why she hasn't changed into her Aunt Jemima costume yet. I'm sorry, what? Yes. Lauren says to Oprah, why aren't you Aunt Jemima? And she looks at him like he's crazy. And she said, you know, but she goes from like Oprah to they push her into an angry black woman trap. And she says, like I said, I don't do Aunt Jemima. And furthermore, I'm not doing the maid sketch. I'm not doing the Breer Rabbit sketch. And you can just forget about me in the refrigerator repair sketch. Oh, my God. Then she slams the door. And then Denitra Vance, the lone black female cast member until Sashir Zamata, comes out dressed costume like Whoopi Goldberg in the color purple. And she's holding a silver tray with a matching what? coffee pot no. and, a, and a little porcelain cup for Lauren. And, and she picks the cup up and she calls him Mr. Lauren, by the way. And he says, Denitra, you're black. Then asks her, how, you know, what do I do about how bad and disobedient Oprah's being? And Denitra says what Oprah says in The Color Purple. Beat her. No! Wesley, 
No. I'm not making this This is why Jordan Peele made Get Out. I mean, what the heck? That is appalling. That's appalling. But this is helpful. This actually is, is setting us up for where we're trying to go. Okay, this is good to know. Halle Berry becomes the first black woman in history to win an Oscar for Best Actress for her role in Monsters Ball. But, you know, did that Oscar, which she won more than 10 years ago at this point, really open doors to other black women? I would say for a long time the answer was no. But I think in Hollywood, everything works in like like dog years or reverse dog years. I don't know how you count the dog years, but it's a long time, right? Like the the rate of progress, it just takes longer for things to happen. I mean, things change and they don't change. It take a long time. We're like simultaneously much farther along than we ever previously had been. But if you think about 1939 to now... And we're still we're still wrestling with this history. Like Jordan Peele is still giving us a Georgina to challenge this this complacency right, that right. we might be feeling about how far we've come. And then, of course, if Octavia Spencer gets nominated for her role in The Shape of Water, it'll be what you told me the third time she's been nominated for playing a maid. I mean, it's like the the, the you know the, the distance between right. then and now is actually not that far. Yeah, it'll be at least the third time she's been nominated for playing a black woman serving white people in the '60s. Lord of mercy. Yeah. I, but I think that we're pushing, there's a real change away from that now. And I think that it'll be interesting to see what this conversation looks like in two years. I just find, I find whatever is happening now to be important. We're at a real turning point. One of the main ways that we see Black people depicted like in fiction at all is as maids and particularly in Southern literature. This is a story about white people. It's a story about Southern white people. And so like race is going to be in it inherently because you can't separate that. Those people would have had black maids serving them. But I think this book does a good job of making it clear that like the black people, they are their own people. They have their own perspectives and needs and wants and desires and complex lives that are completely separate from the white people and that the white people in the book clearly mm-hmm. don't get. Mm-hmm. This book is not about those made characters, but I think it's it's kind of useful to compare this book to another book that tried to tackle the sort of... Re- race relationship between black and white people of this era, which was The Help. So The Help was criticized by a lot of black film and literary critics. And I think it fails in a way that Divine Secrets of the Yaya Sisterhood doesn't because The Help makes a white person the hero of Mm. the story. Whereas uh, Divine Secrets of the Yaya Sisterhood That's not the story it's trying to tell. It's trying to tell the story of Sitta and Vivi, but do that in a responsible way. You know, it's maybe a less ambitious job than the help was trying to do, but it also like does a better job at it. There are two different passages in the book. And one of them that I want to read, like the one that is like a larger scene that I think really sort of encapsulates kind of like the ridiculousness of white privilege is the scene uh, where it's the flashback in 1957 where the kids are sick, but the, the maid Melinda has to move on to the next house. And the fact that Vivi just cannot get her to stay there 
and just essentially raise her kids for her and take care of her kids because Vivi's just like, I don't understand why I have to do it. And just sort of getting so bent out of shape because Melinda's like, well, I got to move on to the next house. <laughs> and she's like, well, I don't want to stand in the way of your career. And it's like, seriously? Vivi? Yeah. Like it's one thing to hire, you know, someone mm-hmm. to clean your house, but to literally be like, no, like you are going to feed my children with milk from mm-hmm. your breasts. It's like a very different taking someone's physical body yeah. as labor that isn't shown in the movie. I would agree with that, but to like be clear about that time in history as well. Only poor women breastfed their own babies. Wait, really? In America? Um, oh. Yeah, because it was, this is like the age of like, you know, after World War II, where everybody's like starting to take vitamins for the first time and where they're like, you talk about foods that have been fortified. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And because, like, before that, there were tons of people who were getting rickets from, um, was it niacin deficiency? Exactly. And so, like, breast milk was seen as not as healthy as formula, which is going to be fortified with all of this kind of stuff that the baby needs. So if you're breastfeeding, it's because you're poor. And then, you know, like, later on, we come to find out that this is actually more healthy for the baby to be breastfed, it turns out. Um, but, you know, this is just like mm-hmm. the cultural assumption of the time, not backed up by any science. I don't know. These are like things you find out when you have kids and and you get these lectures like, don't believe what you've read about baby formula being better for the baby. I'm like, I've never <laughs> heard that. What are you talking I see. about? Also, I just want to point out, I did a little bit of quick research on the fly rickets is vitamin d deficiency niacin deficiency is Mm. called pellagra (laughs) but i think you're totally right about what you're saying about the dehumanizing yeah you know of you know quote-unquote mammies uh to to be used to feed white babies because they would sleep over at the house a lot of times too so they wouldn't be there for their own children that they are supposed to be raising. They would go from household to household raising these white babies. Yeah, that is one of the things that the book points out, that like these women were spending more time with these white children they were looking after than with their own children and like how tragic that is for them. Yeah, I actually have the passage that perfectly encapsulates that where Sitta is reminiscing on Waletta of the countless cruelties of racism, Sitta thought, One is the unspoken rule that white children, once we reach a certain age, are supposed to renounce the passionate love we feel for the black women who raised us. We're supposed to replace it with a sentiment, patronizing affection. We're supposed to let the thinly veiled jealousy of our own mothers obscure what we feel for the women they hired as maids. Yeah, it's such a good passage. And it shows, you know, that that even though... Black people in the South obviously like bore the brunt of racism and had most of the negative consequences, but but racism dehumanizes everybody uh-huh. and that and that white people feel those negative effects as well. Yeah, there was like an article that I linked in the show notes. The article is called What White Allies Need to Know Before Putting on Their White Capes. 
you have to be ready to acknowledge the anger that the black community has against white people. If you want to be like a hashtag woke person or whatever and be like, oh, hey, I want to be a good ally and tell me what I can do. And it's like you have to acknowledge the ugliness of the culture. It's a fantastic article. Anybody, you should totally read it. There's like hard truths in there. But again, if you want to be a good ally, you have to face those hard truths. Obviously, like I'm the guy here. So like, here's how I felt about this. And I'm not like (laughs) um, an expert on feminist theory or anything. So feel free to like tell me that I'm wrong. When I was reading the story, like from a 2018 perspective, I kept thinking about like the generations of feminism and how like Vivi's generation of feminism is just coming out of the suffrage movement and how that was like really puritanical in a way of like, you know, like prohibition and stuff like that was a major part of it and upright Mm -hmm. moral behavior. It was very much a white women's movement for white women. But then you get second wave feminism that, you know, expands the scope and, you know, it had to start somewhere. I'm not saying that the first wave feminism was like broken or something, but like it just did what it was able to do. And second wave feminism expanded that, but it only just started to include a consciousness of like, oh, right, brown people. Yeah. Okay. uh, Yeah. I guess that's a problem too, right? There are women who have different colored skin than we do. I guess, yeah, Mm -hmm. they should vote too. And we should support them as our sisters. I feel like the book acknowledges the racial tensions of the South, but I don't feel like either Vivi or Sita ever actually grapple with their white supremacy in a meaningful way. And and it felt to me like this darker side of second wave feminism that was like, Hey, yeah, you guys exist like job done. We did it guys. Like we, we admitted that racism is a thing and that, yep, you're people too. Nowadays, like you're talking about what does it take to be an ally as a white person where you have to like, not just admit that like, oh, yeah, you're a person too, but like to step more into the experience of being in a white supremacist culture when you don't have access to that privilege and to step back and let other people tell their story too. I mean, that's not the scope of the story, like you said, Anya. Like, it's something that we need to point out as problematic Mm -hmm. within the story. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely true. And I think the story presents them as, like, steeped in racism on one hand, but also kind of, like, I'm doing air quotes, like, those the good white people, right? Because there's there's that scene where they start a food fight, basically, because Teensy's cousin calls their maid the N-word because she had the audacity to walk into the dining room while they were eating, I think it's a really accurate portrayal of racism and like white supremacy through the ages. I think you can argue about to what extent the book is aware that even 1990s Vivi is like not living up to to what she needs to be as as a white ally. I don't even think that Vivi is like yeah. interested in having that sort of introspection. She's just like, this no. is what I'm doing yeah. and you're just going to have to accept it. I mean, the book addresses it, which is good, because there are stories that take place about white people in the South that just don't have 
any people of color in them. Or have like a very falsely romantic version. Right. Like, I mean, like Gone with the Wind plays a huge role. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> the book is definitely aware about the way that the South is romanticized in literature and is like mm-hmm. very much trying not to pull a Gone with yeah. the Wind. Now, Mammy Darling. Right. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> like, I love Gone with the Wind, but it is problematic as fuck. This idea of like, it is very much like the war of Northern aggression in the fucking South with some of these people that right. are protesting the removal of these monuments. I, a, a reason I ended a friendship with a guy is because he was a part of these Facebook groups where it's just like, oh, like that we had black soldiers and blah, 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 blah. But it's like, you're not acknowledging the whole thing of, What if the South, by some wild miracle, had won? The Black population would still be subjugated, would still be considered as lesser than, would still be considered property. And that is something that these people just do not want to acknowledge. They just want to just talk about this ridiculous idea of Southern gentility that is just diametrically opposed to the reality of the brutal history of living in the South. If you're not a fucking white person. So Sarah, do you have any other final thoughts about what the book means to you or what your experience has been recommending it to other people? I've never actually recommended it to anyone because my whole experience with this book is deeply personal where I feel that like handing this book over to people this is like part of my naked soul on display like if you want to understand me as a person to a certain extent you need to read this book so I've never actually recommended it to people so like I remember reaching out to you Anya and talking about like oh well I have a story that impacted my life like back and I was like a little bit nervous because how this book has impacted my life I feel that uh, people that are friends with me or whatever, maybe if they read this book, they can feel like they understand me to a certain extent, or this might just all be internalized on my part. But I really feel that like you read, like I posted on Twitter, I think that you can get a better understanding to the type of person that I am by reading this book. I love that. Yeah. Thank you so much for trusting us with your story and for agreeing to come on and talk about it. I mean, this is really the kind of story that we want the show to be I would love for other people to read this now and like reach out to me on Twitter and be like, oh, hey, do you feel like you understand me as a person a little bit more? Or like even sort of just enjoy (laughs) the story in general. (laughs) Well, so I guess that wraps us up. Um, I wanted to take a minute to mention a podcast episode done by friends of the show, Mandy Kay, Ottaway, and... Dr. Kelly Jones on their podcast, Southern Fried Pop Culture, um, where they just looked at the movie Mm -hmm. alone. They talk a lot more about how the movie felt either authentically Southern or or not to them and and which parts of the movie they really related to. So you guys should definitely check that out. That episode is from January 11th of 2018. And coincidentally, our episode next month is going to have Mandy K. Ottaway as our featured guest. Yeah, we're going to be talking about Julia and Julia, the book. And I really want to know why not the movie, Mandy. So please be ready with that. And that is the the book that kind of chronicles uh, the journey that one woman took blogging her way 
through Julia Child's cookbook about French cooking and how it actually like caught the American zeitgeist in a certain moment. And she like ended up on national news. But the story is a lot like this story about being at this tipping point in your life and especially this female experience of um, am I going to have a family? What am I going to do with my career that's about to take off? Uh, who am I? What does it all mean? And then, you know, putting that through the lens of like, I'm going to make this goal for myself. And then I'm going to be very open and vulnerable about it with total strangers. Like when you think about Mandy K. Ottaway through that lens, I think it totally makes sense about somebody who is remaking herself in mm-hmm. public and out loud and doing it the way that she wants to do it. Like Ooh. that to me, that's Mandy. Also, apparently, there's Buffy in it. A lot of Buffy <laughs> is in that book, man. It's, it's been crazy. Ages how much since Buffy I read the book. book, I'll have to reread it for this episode. It was great. Yeah, I'm. I'm actually really excited for it now. I haven't read it yet. Uh, obviously, I like just finished Divine Secrets of the Yaya <laughs> Sisterhood last night, so I am behind on my podcast homework. And we had a couple of reviews on Apple Podcasts. That's the best way to help new listeners find us. And we really appreciate everybody who does that for us. And uh, to show our appreciation, we always try to write you guys some fun haikus. Uh, So who do we have first? First up is the listener Word Fay. Thank you so much, Word Fay. And here's a poem that we wrote for you. Fierce Story Lover. Wielding words, sassy and short, all mirth and some matter. We also got a review from Robbie, who we know from Twitter. Trying out new things, our show and chocolatiering, promises in the bark. And then finally, we want to give a big thanks to Generosity, who gave the show an awesome shout out on her own podcast called A Command of Her Own, where she and her co-host Kate are analyzing Star Trek uh, Discovery, the the latest series on CBS. Um, And so we wrote you a haiku as well. Lovely words from a badass Canadian in her own command. And thanks again so much uh, to everybody who's given us support and reviews uh, and ratings because we have more ratings than we do reviews. Uh, But we really appreciate, you know, the extra visibility and all the retweets on Twitter, the shout outs on other shows. Like we notice all that stuff and we really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much. Okay, so Sarah, why don't you tell us uh, where we can find you and about your numerous <laughs> projects? Okay, so uh, you can find me most easily on Twitter at other underscore girl. Uh, like they have mentioned, my podcasts are numerous. My two solo poge- projects are Famished and Feasting and Lay Back and Think of England. Wonking Out and The Detective, The Doctor, and The Woman are two podcasts that I do with my totally awesome friends, Rachel and Trisha. And then my most recent one is Lattes at Luke's. The first Lattes at Luke's episode will actually be dropping at the end of April on April 26th, to be exact, where we're just going to go episode by episode through Gilmore Girls with my friend Trisha. You can find all of those links to my on my website uh, otherbluegirl.wordpress.com by clicking on the come listen to me talk tab 
Um, my favorite Famished and Feasting series of episodes that you've done have been the ones covering um, the Bright Sessions. And in particular, you have um, an interview with um, the Bright Sessions creator, Lauren Shippen, and um, one of the actors... Julia Morizawa. Yeah, and both of those interviews were just so fantastic and wonderful to listen to as a fan of The Bright Sessions. So if you like The Bright Sessions, definitely go check those out, and it'll be a good way to dip your toe into Sarah's work. Yeah, and I will definitely be covering season two in the future, and I have my eyes on Brigan and Alex Gellner. I really want to try and get them on the podcast. Them and Anna Lore. Lori that plays Chloe on the show. Those are my next targets, so to speak, as far as like <laughs> guest stars are concerned. I'm Anya, and you can follow me on Twitter at Strangely Literal. That's Strangely then L I T E R L. I'm Alan, and you can follow me on Twitter at Chipper Allen. You can follow the show on Twitter at HG Storycast and visit our website at hgstorycast.com. And if you'd like to leave us feedback, you can visit hgstorycast.com slash contact or send an email to contact at halloweddgroundmedia.com. And thanks again, Sarah, so much for coming and talking with us. Yeah, so lovely, lovely conversation. Hallowed Ground Storycast is a Hallowed Ground Media production and is produced under a Creative Commons non-commercial share alike license.